G'day guys and welcome to Life in the Peloton. I'm here to introduce this week's episode with Lionel Burney. We've got a cracker episode coming up. Lionel, how are you going there, mate? Not too bad, Mitch. How are you? How's the recovery going? Perhaps we'll talk about that in the outro because you've been back on the road, haven't you? Doing some outdoor cycling after, well, you've been wowing me with your uh, double sessions on the indoor bike as you recover from your crash in uh, Belgium a few weeks ago. Yeah, there's a little bit to say about that. I am back out on the road now. I uh, stripped that cast off a few weeks ago and just went for it. So let's have a chat about that after the episode because what we've got coming up this week is Hannah Barnes. She's a pretty well-known name in the women's field of cycling and a very well-known name in Britain especially. I often see her around here in Girona and it's great to run into her and have a chat with her. And I thought, God, I've got to get you on the podcast. So she'd been a fantastic guest. Yeah, British fans will know Hannah Barnes. Uh, she's uh, part of the Barnes dynasty, I guess. Her younger sister is Alice Barnes, also a pro rider. Hannah's been racing with Canyon SRAM since 2016. Before that, she was with United Healthcare. And at the end of this season, she will move teams. She set to join Uno X, uh, a new women's pro team from next season. And uh, if you're in the UK and looking forward to the women's tour, expect to see Hannah on the start line there. The women's tour coming up at the start of October, just after the first edition of Women's Paris-Roubaix as well. And just a few highlights from Hannah Barnes's career because she's a former Giro stage winner, a former women's tour stage winner. She's been sixth in Liège, Bastogne-Liège and Ghent-Wevelgem. So a real all-rounder and a very aggressive rider. You often see her, um, you know, trying to get off the front and get into the moves. So, um, yeah, if you uh, are looking forward to the women's tour, uh, hopefully we'll see her in action there in a well week or 10 days or so. Without rambling on too long, I'm just going to let you guys sit back and enjoy her story. Enjoy, guys. Well, here we are. We're sitting down with Hannah Barnes, long-time professional. I thought you were about in your 14th year, but that's what my research sort of told me. But you think otherwise. Welcome, Hannah, to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, correct me then. How many years have you been professional? Since 2014. And why have I got mistaken with 14 years? Because you actually, you've been riding in teams for 14 years, but you only decided that you were professional once you were once getting paid. Once you get paid. a paycheck, yeah. you're professional, I guess. But no, I've been doing it when I left school. So 2012 was my first year in the pro peloton, I guess, but 2014 was my first paid contract. I could probably go back even more years for my professional ranks then if I try and like sort of claim that, you know, like oh, I was getting, got a bit of money there and you know, maybe I've got yeah. like 18, 20 years pro if you go <laughs> that theory. Great. I'm, I'm actually quite happy with that. All right. Well, let's go right back to the beginning because what I want to do today is I want to run through your story and I'm, sh- I'm sure you've told it a million times, but I've never heard it. And I'm assuming a lot of people out there haven't heard it. And I think it's quite an interesting story from what I could gather. Mm-hmm. Um, I want you to take me right back to the beginning because what we're finding out more and more today is not a lot of cyclists that are professional. I don't know if that's the same in the women's peloton, but especially in the men, they're not really starting at a very young age anymore. You really did start when you were young. You have the sort of the typical start at Mm -hmm. 10 years old and you followed the passion. You weren't doing cycling 100% in those those days, but 
you really started young and you loved the sport back then. Tell me a little bit about what it was like back when you were a kid and your mum and dad, from what I understand, were in, into you know, mountain bike endurance. Yeah, so I grew up with bikes. Um, my dad, every weekend, would go away with friends, um, pack up the van and go. Um, and they do, well, they did a lot of mountain biking, 24-hour Red Bull events that we'd mm. go along to. So just camp out in the tent at 2am, I'd be climbing trees, cheering <laughs> mum on. Um, and then actually I did one of those when I was 12, I think. I lied about my age on the start and joined one of the relay teams. But yeah, so from probably eight, I was already mountain biking. Mountain biking was where I, where I started and my summer holidays would be going in the van to, to, to Morzine and Leger in the Alps and going downhilling. And yeah, from there it kind of took off. And then dad's mountain bike broke part of like, uh, I don't know, the Met Kanger or something broke. We went to the bike shop and there was a sign on the door just saying there was a local bike club that was doing kids racing so we went along to that and that was it that was from 10 years old that was me with a race number on <laughs> mountain bike racing or road racing um a bit of both so actually every wednesday was different so you do road racing one weekend or one wednesday mountain biking one wednesday and then time trial was the next one so wow just a bit of everything <laughs> and i think that's great because this is i've actually had this discussion quite recently with a lot of people that's the more racing you do as a youngster mm-hmm. track racing especially i think is great because you get that chance to do race finishes four or five times a day. Yeah. And especially what you were doing there, so many different disciplines at a young age. You didn't have to just go, oh, road cycling, oh, I don't like it, I'm not going to do cycling. I was like, well, actually, I think I might like mountain biking and then yeah. come back to road. That was a great way to start. Yeah, it was good, actually. Um, my cousins lived, oh, they lived two hours from, from, from us. Um, so we found a bike club that was halfway between us. So every Saturday we'd each drive an hour to to Reading, um, and that was a track team, like a outdoor 500 meter velodrome, concrete, mm-hmm. just doing skills there for two hours, and we'd drive home, and that was our see the family <laughs> weekend. Uh, but yeah, it was it was real good. Because you were you moved around a lot as a youngster. You were born mm-hmm. in Turnbridge, well, yeah, Tunbridge Kent. Wells, yeah, um, and then you mo- grew up in. Bladden. <laughs> Bladen in Bladen, Oxfordshire. Oxfordshire and Towchester in North Hampshire. Is that correct? Uh, toaster. Toaster? It, toaster, yeah. You wouldn't think it was said like that. Right. But. Okay. So, you know, you weren't really like, for instance, for me, you know, I grew up, I, I knew my neighborhood, I, mm. I knew my club, I, I went out to the, the Northern Combine, I started to get a little, you know, crew around. What about you growing up? You know, was this... Okay, maybe you weren't cycling when you were moving around a lot, but you were sort of just trying to find your roots there. Was cycling something in those early ages that you had a bit of consistency with? Oh, yeah. I mean, Toaster was pretty much where it started. I think if we hadn't moved there, I probably wouldn't be racing. But yeah, it was always every weekend would be going riding to the local pub, having a few pints. Well, dad having a few pints and riding home again. Um, But yeah, then we... Really? Yeah. (laughs) It was just all about pubs and... Yeah, trying to find a local pub and sit in the garden and if it's a nice day. But yeah, we actually, it was Team Milton Keynes, which was Ian Stanard's first first club. And um, there was like a huge kit bag that you'd, you'd go into. And I cool. had Ian Stanard's jacket with his name in it. So that was pretty cool. And then we'd see him out a lot because he grew up where we were. So yeah, it was pretty cool. It's, I mean, I've lived a few places, but I've, I've, I found my crew wherever I was really. <laughs> I really love that. That's it's exactly the same thing that happened to me at my club in Brunswick. 
it wasn't professional kit, but it was just mm. hand-me-down kit. Mm-hmm. And these are all shorts without bib and brace even, you know, but that stuff was so special. Um, and it makes me even think about my kit bag taking back to Australia. I can't wait yeah. to take that down to yeah. Brunswick and maybe they don't even want that kit now. There's too much other good custom yeah. kit out there now, but there is something special about getting that professionals kit with especially with the name in it mm-hmm. and you know you look up to those guys you probably looked up to them already before um was that sort of then i guess creating that love for cycling because it still took a few years before you really followed that 100 percent, wasn't it yeah i mean my mum pushed school <laughs> more than my dad did um she she wanted me to finish school um but it was kind of just get through the day and then get home and ride a bike um yeah. And just, yeah, try and get through my exams. But I, yeah, for me, cycling from probably 15 or 16 was what I wanted to do. Um, it was hard explaining it to my friend. They didn't really understand understand no. it. I mean, there was a party at the weekend. I was like, yeah, might be there, I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd, I always wanted to do it. And I think also when you've got people in the club that you're, you're doing, and I think when we joined the club, Ian had just gone to Sky and like he was pretty good then yeah. so everyone knew who he was and we had like this person to aspire to but yeah about the kit like I've got a big bag at home in my mum and dad's house and it's just in the way like every time I go back I'm like oh so dad uh he's just got this kit bag in his in the car and when he sees a family riding he stops and gives the kids one of my jerseys so that's amazing that's yeah, a great idea because he's just yeah why, why not it's, there's no point yeah. me having it I've got so much anyway so that's just what he does but he said it's pretty hard trying to find people that my kit fits but <laughs> have you yeah. kept any of that I was just seeing then I've kept some of that old stuff I've got a skin mm. suit from Jeremy Hunt that it was a big matte skin suit and I remember remember a few years ago let's, that's probably already 15 years ago now <laughs> I put it away into a suitcase it's like oh I'm keeping that it was yeah. already, probably already blown out by the time I've got it. have you kept some of that stuff from Yogi um, no, I actually, I gave his one back because I was like, actually, there's going to be a kid that gets this. Like, I got it and he'll wear it all the time. But I've got my my dad especially was just like, you have to keep everything. That's probably why I'm a bit of a hoarder. There's cupboards full of kit still. But it's all, yeah, means something, you know, like those, mm. those first kits you've got. And I actually go back to like thinking about it when I was 10. You'd have one jersey or one pair of shorts. And mum would just have to just wash it every night. And now it's just out of control how but much you, stuff I have now. But you don't care. I Think back to junior racing. You, If it was cold, you maybe had arm warmers. Yeah. You know, and a jersey and an undershirt. Yeah. No way we were wearing leg warmers. No. Um, I think I had arm warmers as leg warmers. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you just go out. If it was raining, you'd just be cold. But yeah. now it's just a bit soft. <laughs> Think back now, I'm just thinking about that. Think back now to those times, those, I guess, difficult sort of turning point times when you're a teenager. And exactly what you said there, like you get confronted with the option to go to a party or not, Mm. you know, but the passion of cycling for you was like, well, it's not even really a question. Mm. I really want to be good on the weekend or I want to just go there and do that. So I'm not going to go to a party. I guess thinking to all those aspiring cyclists listening, if there is any, but... I can specifically remember the exact situation for myself. And you do feel like a bit of an outcast, mm-hmm. but I sort of didn't care because it was like, you guys actually don't know this other little world that I have. Yeah. Was that a little bit like what you had? It was exactly the same. Like I'd go to school, get through those five days and I'd have like, like everyone's got school friends. They're close and 
some people didn't really get it. And I'd be like, I, I might be at the party, I don't know, like I'll come and leave early. But it was just kind of, the Saturday and Sunday was about seeing your other friends. Mm. It was kind of like two two groups of friends. And yeah, it's it was pretty, I don't know, it, it was real hard to explain it to everyone. Like, mm. like what did you do this weekend? <laughs> well, I drove five hours, did a bike race and drove home again. But yeah, it was, it was good. I, I mean, I just am real close to a lot of the people I did that with and also my family as well. Like we we did it, my my two cousins did it and my my like that's what I every weekend I'd see all my family as well. So that was pretty cool. Do you think now to fast forward a little bit, because you were a national champ very early on, at fourteen years old, you won the Omnium on the track. I didn't even know they did the Omnium at age under fourteen. Is that true? Have I done that? Yeah, correctly? so actually British Cycling they do under twenty threes do Omnium. And then under 16, you do... So national track nationals is like a week long. So you've got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and you have all the different events from there. But And you did om- and you were national champ Omnium. Yeah. And then the year... I just... I really like track. Mm. So, I mean, one... I think two years in a row, I won four out of the five championships. So it was just... Yeah, it was just fun. I was going to go through your national titles, 10 times national champion through multiple disciplines, Criterium a few times, Cyclocross, mm-hmm. Points, Scratch, Madison, Time Trial, Road Race. You're only missing mountain bike. Have I missed no, that? mountain bike. Is there? So yeah, it's 11 times. Yeah, that was the first one I ever won, actually, yeah. So you've done, you're like a, a female version of Tom Pitcock. Like <laughs> God, this, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Yeah. You're like, it's, that, I was doing the podcast with him the other week, and when I was going through all the stuff, I was like, yeah. Mate, you've done everything, same exactly. as you. Yeah. You've really just sort of not only tried everything, but won the championship of everything too. Yeah, I'm actually pretty annoyed at myself. I didn't carry on the mountain biking because it's real cool. Mm. And I did a, I did quite a lot of downhilling, um, but now it's just not. It's like as soon as you've lost your nerve, you can't do it. I, t- I tried to do it in 2013. I went to Alpstadt World Cup. I was like, I'm going to make a mountain bike come back. And I was like, nah. How'd you go? I finished but I walked most of it <laughs> it's just it's too gnarly once you like take two or three years out just the courses now are just yeah my skill level went pretty pretty low and also it gives you a good appreciation to to those guys well to those yeah. girls and those guys doing yeah. it yeah yeah it's crazy tell me about now this is fast forwarding a little bit but we'll come back your sister and when you were national champion on the road she mm. was second in that championship is that correct yeah yeah I find that like crazy. It's, tell me a little bit about that story. Um, you know, you two being one in the race because mm-hmm. nationals quite often are all one out. Maybe you have yeah. another teammate there, but to have mm. your brother or your sister in the well, it would be your sister and for me, my brother in the race. Yeah. That would just be like this team that yeah. no one could compete with, and then you guys running one two. Tell me about that day. Like that's just <laughs> well, what a dream. Yeah, I mean that nationals was. It was pretty cool because I'd been out for five months because I broke my ankle August 2015 and it was a long recovery. I broke it in August and I was just back on the bike out the cast in January. So it'd been like a long slog of recovery and came for nationals and I was like, I'll see how it goes. And Alice was there with, I think they had like eight teammates there. And I was on my own and I was like, we'll see how it goes. But I think it was like a group of nine or something. We were just riding and I was like, ah. Oh. I was sprint, but actually looking back at the video, it's pretty funny because I, I probably put Alice into the fence. 
I was like, oh, I could feel someone. And I was like, oh, I'll just drift a bit. She was like, you pushed me to the barrier, but she was super happy. Cause she knows how long it had taken me to to recover and get back. So it was pretty cool. I do want to talk about that in a little bit, but let's just go right back to when you decide to start racing, cycling full time. And you did speak about being picked up by the, the club, well, mm-hmm. joining, going into the bike shop, seeing the club, but then British Cycling became aware of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know you got to got a chance to go to the youth com games in 211 when things started to get rolling um you excelled there as well you know two golds there um a bronze your sister was there actually in the mountain biking before we go on there how much influence do you think you had in your sister following in your footsteps or was that more to do with the atmosphere that you spoke about with your family just being you know with your cousins racing your mum and dad doing the enduro stuff was it just natural that your sister was going to follow or you think you had a big part in you know her following in that sort I of mean, path. Actually, we took real different paths. I focused on the from thirteen when I joined British Cycling. I focused more on the track side and the road, um, whereas she went straight into the mountain bike program. So we'd we'd never really see each other. She was always on training camps, mountain biking, and I got soft and just went around a velodrome. <laughs> and then she was going for Rio mountain bike. Um, and they didn't qualify a rider. So British Cycling were like, the year before, try and go for the road. Um, so she just went full time on the road and yeah, but she she was pretty handy. Mm. I like I, that Alpstadt World's actually, World Cup, I was at this this drop off for 20 minutes. She's like, I can't do it, I can't do it. And she came around this corner, I was like, hey Hannah, and just dropped straight down. And I was like, oh gosh, so. But she still does it a lot now because she lives in a real good place for, for mountain biking, but. Yeah, it was like a different different pathway for sure. But then we went, she joined Drops in 2014 and then came to Canyon Shram two years after me. So 18, I guess. I can't remember now. Mm. And then that, that was pretty much it. She asked me about it because she had a, quite a few teams that were interested and she said, should I come? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> you could give her that advice. Yeah. Did she get the same sort of, treatment i guess you could call it probably not the right word but like i have heard this story that when you decided to come across and start racing in holland your dad brought you across dropped you off made sure you got settled in and said well see ya see ya you're on your own yeah tell me a little bit about that story so i was first year out of junior and straight away was i gotta go to europe europe is where you where you have to be to race your bike i was 18 it was 2012 so it was olympic year which is notorious for being the hardest year and um i hated it every second of it i'd start a race couldn't finish it just go back to this team house in holland just like what am i doing and then i broke my collarbone in april dad came and got me i was like thank god That was worth it. Dad. It was <laughs> worth laying it over, breaking the collarbone for that. Yeah, and then I just did loads of racing in Britain that summer, just criterions and stuff, and and went back. But it was a big learning curve, like huge. And then the team folded at the end of that year. Um, and then 2013, I I raced in England, didn't leave, didn't like get on a ferry or just stay in England. Just like, oh, I'll just do this, did some tour series, and then there's a race called Smithfield Nocturne which is probably the biggest nighttime crit in Britain that Rafa actually sponsored. And I won the race, but celebrated while we were lapping riders. And Laura Kenny, 
came second. So they disqualified me for dangerous riding. And it was a huge thing. And Cav tweeted just like, what the hell was going on? Like, if you win a race, you celebrate, you shouldn't get disqualified for that. And his tweet, that tweet was the reason that I got into my next team in America. Cause the, mm. the general manager was like, what's going on here? Like, and look, like did some research and yeah, that was, that was that. <laughs> That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode of Life in the Peloton is sponsored by Babbel, which is an app to help you learn a second language, or perhaps a third language, I don't know. We can't all be as proficient at foreign languages as my cycling podcast colleague Daniel Freib, and it may surprise you to know that when I was at school, I studied German to GCSE level and French to A level. But after that, my language learning hit the buffer somewhat, and I wish that Babbel had been around then because I think it would have spurred me on and kept me engaged and interested in continuing to add to what I already knew. Over the last year or so, I've been using the Babbel app to learn Italian, and what I really like about it is that the lessons are relatively short. They take about 15 minutes each time, but they're quite intense, and there's a definite feeling that you're placing the building blocks of the language one on top of the other as you go, strengthening what you already know and stretching your boundaries each time. And because there's an element of gameplay to it, you want to get through each level or each lesson making as few mistakes as possible. And as they're relatively short, you can do at least one lesson a day, sometimes two, sometimes three, if you're really on a roll. Crucially, the language has been designed by real people, so you're not learning a computer-generated version of the language. You're learning actual useful vocabulary and meaningful phrases that you'll actually be able to use when you get to a foreign country and need to try out what you've learned on a real person. You can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. And also importantly, Babbel has a speech recognition technology built in, which helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. So start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, they're offering our listeners six months free when you purchase a six month subscription. You need to use the promo code cycling. Go to uk.babble.com slash play and use promo code cycling to get an extra six month free on top of your six month subscription. That's uk.babbel.com forward slash play with the promo code cycling and the details are in the show notes. Now back to Mitch's conversation with Hannah Barnes. Well, that's a nice segue because this is something I think is a really pinnacle part apart from that time in Holland. From mm-hmm. what I can see, your time in America and you signed yeah. with United Healthcare are really in those years, 2015, 2016, even the men's team was yeah. quite a strong team. Mm-hmm. And they've always been a strong team, a massive presence throughout America. But in those years in particular, they were coming across to Europe and actually yeah. having a big presence there. Mm-hmm. From what I can see from the results, and I've written it down here because it was quite ridiculous, 13 wins, pretty much yeah. sprint king there over those two years. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, a lot of criteriums, and you sort of, from what I can see, I want, I want you to tell me about it. What did you really learn there? Like you could, not only were you away from home, you were living in a team house there, but suddenly you were just free to race these different styles of mm-hmm. racing in the US, which was another great experience I can imagine. Yeah. Um, but from what I can see, you were starting to get that confidence. Yeah. Bunch sprints rolling from year to year to year. And then you sort of, that was for me a pinnacle point before you came back to Europe and mm. started doing what you're doing now. Tell me about that US stint. It, it was so good. <laughs> um, actually, everything that year was exciting. Even sitting in like a, 
American embassy in London. I was like, this is so cool. Now I'm like, <laughs> you're oh, kidding me. <laughs> yeah. Like I remember getting the passport, just like, this is so good. And then got on the plane and I just, I'd never been on a long haul plane. Like I'd just been in Europe. So just on this plane, just like, this is nuts. And went to Phoenix, Arizona for the, for the first camp and all the guys were there, like Johnny Clark, mm-hmm. he took me under his wing. Ben Day, it was kind of at breakfast table the first day. It was, I just sat down and it was Johnny Clark, Ben Day and Hilton Clark and me. And I was just like, this is... Three Aussies, <laughs> nice American team, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was real, real cool. And we were there for two weeks. It was real good. Like I'd never been to In-N-Out Burger and that was like the mm. first place we went. And just, it was just real good. And then I came home got an upgrade on the flight. So I was in business class coming home. So this is cool. And then my next time back to America was in Asheville in North Carolina, which is where I lived two years. And I was like, this is a bit of a tra- change to Phoenix, Arizona, but it was real Why? Cool. Why so? They're just so different. Like Phoenix was huge roads, massive cars. And then Asheville was kind of a hippie town and in the mountains. So it was cool. And then we were, we hashtag, blue train I guess so I just learned a lot from because we would get on a plane get to the race and it was just us and the guys because we had the crit squad were they the same races so they'd have a women's race beforehand and then a men's yeah. race so or vice versa yeah like every morning we'd get up we'll go for a ride then have pad thai <laughs> do the race and then have chipotle sounds like a like, dream <laughs> it was <laughs> It was pretty cool. And then just the prize money there as well. You get like, these huge checks and you're just like, this is not, I think I like tripled my wage that year just cause we were, I mean, we did a lot of racing and we were just sweeping the, the podium with me mm. and Corinne and the lead out was so good. It was normally like, yeah, all three of us on the podium it was pretty cool. Was it the same sort of tactic as the blue train, the men's team? Because I have heard of stories about these guys and Hilt's, Hilton Clark was, yeah. you know, he was pinnacle to that train. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, no, no, when we come into the sprint, we're not just trying to win. We yeah, do this lead out so well that we're going to get second and third too. Yeah. It was pretty cool. I was always last lead out, but still sprinting. So they were just like, Corinne is the sweeper, but we're also leading her out. So I would just sprint, Corinne would come around me. And Sometimes then, not. Yeah, and then normally like Rushley would be, would be last and she'd come third or something. So it was pretty cool. It was... Yeah, I learned a lot those years, especially when you are with the guys and they've mm. been doing it a long time. So it, it was pretty cool. It's interesting that because it's sort of a bit strange here in Europe and all the teams I've been involved with, maybe a little bit in Green Edge or Mitchelton, we mm. did a little bit with the women's team. Like, I mean, very small. We had yeah. them in the same hotel in the classics where we could discuss slightly a few things. Yeah. And one training camp at the start of the year where sometimes the girls were there. It seems like we can... It's not only the men giving some stuff to the women, you know, advice about racing, whatever, but Mm -hmm. vice versa. Sometimes it's nice to have a different angle. Um, I even remember going training out with some of the girls and just just hearing different stories and different ideas and you can just evolve it in your own way. I think Mm -hmm. there's just so much you can take off each other. It's strange it doesn't happen more over here or at all, really. Yeah, like I loved those those two years, like the training camps, just us just, like we were doing lead outs against the guys Mm. and just just learning from them just and also I think it brings a group closer together when you've got men and women there it's mm. like 
can joke around and stuff. It's not so serious. <laughs> well, and the men also have to be a bit more, you know, like we just <laughs> uh, have to go out of control. Well, maybe, maybe you could <laughs> yeah. comment differently. But, yeah. you know, you got to have a few manners, which isn't bad either because yeah. you don't come home like, you know, swearing yeah. your mouth off every time you come home from a training camp. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me, okay, now, because you did speak about this, this is a really pinnacle part of your career too is this this crash at the end mm. of 2016 15 15 yeah 15 before you came back to europe and quite a funny thing from what i understand is that you're still able to sign your contract as an injured rider with a sort of an unknown date when you're going to be riding you mm. came back and signed with canyon shram which is you know questionably the best female squad for the last sort of five yeah. six years um but obviously those results from the last two years in the States spoke for themselves. Tell me about the crash and then that weird situation about, yeah. you know, when you were able to still sign, were you even worried about signing or it was sort of a done deal by the time you'd had the crash? Um, so I, we came, United Healthcare actually came over for the Tour of Britain, um, which is probably the biggest race in, on our program in June. And it was the first, one so I was fourth on stage one and then I won the final stage and like no one had heard of me and I out sprinted Chloe Hoskins Jolene and just like had they not heard of you because you're in the states or yeah like I was just in the states and I was just no one really heard of me they're like who is this so and then I actually because I was already living here so after that I came back here and um Spain Spain yeah and I was like, oh, I might just message and like email some teams. Like, uh, just went out yourself and did it. Yeah, yeah. I just like wrote a little CV and send them send them out to a few teams. And um, when he got back to me, he was actually in the like directing at the Giro then and <laughs> replied to my email like, yeah, I'd love to love to chat. So yeah, went went through that. And but the team wasn't really official then. It hadn't all fallen into place because it was originally Velocio Lululemon. So I was just holding out. Um, Why in particular did you go for this team? Because now it sounds like you're in control of your own destiny opposed to the men who, well, I'm assuming the women do too, sorry. When you have a manager, mm -hmm. um, you have a little bit of a say, but most of the time the managers are sort of searching for you and yeah. they present you with these options. You're like, oh, okay, I guess that sounds good. Whereas yeah. you had the more like, no, I'm going to just pick the teams that I think I want to go to. Why did you decide Lululemon? Um... I look at the the, manage, the management and also riders. I, I quite like seeing teams where riders stay there for a long time because it shows that the the team's good and mm -hmm. they look after you. And I don't know, it's just not always a team that I aspired to be. They came over to America quite a bit. Um, so I'd already raced them at Toro California and, and whatnot. And then, um, yeah, Ronnie got back to me and it wasn't, I actually got, I got, it was kind of stressful when you're doing it yourself because you want to make sure Very. you make the right decision. Yeah. And, Actually, so I was in Aspen. Um, I just done tour of Utah, did a week in Park City, and then was, went to Aspen for for a week or so before tour of Colorado. And I was like talking to the team, and I, it must have just been stressful because I actually got the shingles. So I had the shingles, went to tour of Colorado, and I had a teammate that was a doctor, and I was like, "What oh, this weird rash?" And I've had like, the oh. shingles. I had them too. Yeah, she's like, "Oh, you got the you got the shingles." So I went to the the team doctor at Toro Colorado and they're like oh no you're good to race so I, I did Breckenridge time trial as a stage one and Breckenridge is like 3,000 meters so you're going to feel pretty rubbish anyway mm. so I was like oh just the altitude and then the next day 
I was just racing and I was like, I feel awful. Like I was trying to close down gaps and I was like, normally I could do this easy and I can't do it. So I went back to the car and I was like, oh, I'm gonna pull out in the feed zone. Like, I'm not feeling great. I'll pull out in the feed zone. And they're like, you sure? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, oh, nah, just finish it. And I, I crashed in the feed zone and broke my ankle. Nothing to do with you, it was just a feed zone crash? It was just a feed zone, people crashed in front of me and just went down. Oh no. And I was like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. I was like, I'll walk it off and I just put one foot down and I was like, I fell straight to the ground. I was like, ah, you're not walking this off. And oh no. I got in the Swanee van and got to the finish and they wanted to put me in an ambulance. And I'd heard stories, like, oh, I don't ever get in an ambulance in America, it'll cost you an arm and a leg. Even though I was sponsored by an insurance, like the team was an insurance company. I was like, nah, I'll just wait for the race doctor. So I watched the race finish. It's a freaky thing that, isn't it? Like yeah. you need help and you're so yeah. scared because you're like, I don't know what this is going to cost. But I was, and yeah. like, I just needed an x-ray. Yeah. It wasn't like life or death. I was like, I've either broken it or I haven't. And I took my shoe off because my foot was just like getting bigger and bigger. Bone was poking out. Oh, she'd was, be right. Uh, yeah. it, and then I, I um, the race came through, got in the doctor's car, went to the hospital and... I rang dad, I was like, dad, like, don't tell mum. But I'm in the hospital, like, I don't know yet, I'll let you know, but just don't tell mum. Like, and so I rang him back and I was like, oh yeah, so it's broken. And I could just hear mum like crying in the back. And I was like, oh my gosh. So it was all right. I stayed the next few days in uh, Colorado, flew back to Asheville and it was like a pretty tricky break. No one really knew to do surgery or not to do surgery, but we didn't in the end. and took a long time <laughs> yeah about what five six months didn't it yeah i was no way in a cast for 21 weeks in the end mm. so it's a pretty long time but i always have real cold feet so i guess there's just no blood circulation to not that. metaphorically yeah right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> literally yeah literally um all right well i want to sort of talk about all this now and you've been pro professionally in Kenyan Shram for six years mm-hmm. a veteran pro I was trying to think about this before I came to the podcast who would you say that you are equivalent of in the men's peloton if you were trying to say you were someone in the men's peloton the same sort of figure I don't know a lot of riders but I wouldn't know I was thinking, correct me if I could be wrong, I was thinking like a bit like a sort of a Luke Rowe rider, like really strong in the mm-hmm. classics, really knows how to ride the bunch very well, very skilled, yeah. has their limits when it comes to the climbs potentially. Yeah. But is very professional and learns from his years and experience. And I was yeah. like, actually, Hannah's probably like Luke Rowe, um, a guy that I really respect. Yeah. Um, and what I wanted to say is all this stuff being dropped in Holland, learning the hard way, mm-hmm. growing up with cycling as well, jumping across the US, which not many girls did. You know, you came mm-hmm. back to your own scene and people didn't even know that you were you know, a pro. You're like, well, I've yeah. actually been experienced in the world. By the time you came back to Europe, you were a well-rounded pro and you were ready to take on the European mm-hmm. scene in a really high quality team, even organizing your own team. Yeah. How do you think that now has sort of laid the path for you the last five years or six years now in this team in Europe. And you've sort of, when you came back to Europe, I'm ready to go now. And I feel Mm -hmm. like this is again, a lost sort of art is that a lot of guys and girls are just sort of getting brought up the rank too quick 
into the world tour, into yeah. the highest ranks mm-hmm. and just sort of losing their way. I feel like when you came back to Europe, you were like, okay, now I know I've learned. Now I know how to go. What was that like coming back as that sort of experienced pro? Yeah, I mean, for, for us, we don't have the U23 category. So you're going from junior hitting 18 and then coming straight into racing with Mariana Voss and Anna mm. van der Breggen and Van Vluten. And it's it's pretty overwhelming. Um, the peloton is double the size. You're racing double the distance. And like looking back, you had to be, it's like, I wish I was more patient. Like there's better ways to do it than just throwing yourself in the deep end. and. I almost pretty, like I fell out of love with it really. I was like, I can't, I'm not ready for this. I can't do it. I'm, I'm not cut out for it. And when, when was this? That was 2012. Mm. Um, and my parents could see that and they just sat me down and like, just come back to, to Britain. Like just stay on the scene and- This was the end of the Holland period. Yeah. Yeah. And they were just, I liked it. It was fun. Like uh, it, was a, it was a real fun team and real good group. And mum and dad ran it pretty much. They would, they would shuttle us around. Was this on the um, MG or the Team Ibis? MG Maxi Fuel, yeah. yeah. Um, cool. Like, it, it was real good. Um, and then I learned a lot. And then going to America, I was comfy. Mm. Like, it was no stress. You just go to a race, you'd have fun, and you'd hang around. You'd like, oh, it's a new state. Like, cool, new new airport. Yeah, just I was just comfy. Um, but I knew that, but loving it, finding the love for it Really again. loving yeah. it. But I knew that it shouldn't be like that. There should be some pressure from your teammates or from yourself. But that's um, like getting hungry again, isn't it? You yeah, know, it's like, like it's sort of the natural process. Yeah. yeah, and I just thought, I, I'm ready to come mm. to Europe. I, I want to come here. And we didn't really have the racing in America. There's a lot of crits, like our crits, but there was no big races. I mean, we had Tour of California and Gila. Um, but that was pretty much it. So, yeah, I just thought I need to, I need to <laughs> come, come back. And then what was it like? You know, you came back with that, that, like I said, that experience, that, you know, enjoyment again, mm-hmm. and you were ready to attack it. Like you said, okay, maybe I should have been a bit more patient. But I actually see that as sort of a, in a roundabout way, the necessary steps yeah. to come back and be successful in the top level. Mm-hmm. Because, for instance, if you got that chance potentially with Canyon or Lulu, whatever it was called back in yeah. the day, just say they saw something in you and you jumped that step, maybe you're only going to be there for a couple of years because yeah. you would have fallen out of love with it at the top, toughest level mm-hmm. and never had a chance to come back. So in a roundabout way, you were like ready to take it on now. Yeah, I mean, I, I asked a lot of teams when I was leaving junior, like I emailed Orica. I was mm. like, I, I, they were actually the only team that re- responded to the emails which was actually nice. Um, but that, that was hard, like, and you had to just find a team and you had to commit to, to working all winter to try and earn as much money as you could for that summer of racing. So, um, yeah, it was, pretty, it was pretty good, but it was pretty tiring as well. <laughs> Where do you sort of see the future going now with you? You've, like I said, you've come back, you've sort of mastered your craft, craft mm-hmm. the last sort of six years in arguably the best team with yeah. some of the best riders, um, had some great success in the team's time trial with them. You, know, you see yourself, you know, you're only 28 years old. It seems ridiculous because like we're talking about like a huge career here and you still yeah. got potentially a lot more in front of you. Do you still see yourself riding on for years and years with this experience or are you 
you i don't know what where do you see the future for you are you just starting to get your teeth you know into it and like yeah actually you know what i love this life and i see myself for a long lot longer yeah i mean it's taken it i guess two three or four years ago i was top top of the the ranks i guess i was winning races and finish on the podium and stage races and going to worlds and coming top 10 and whatnot um but now i'm just slowly just going to races making sure i'm a loyal teammate like i'm reliable and i've learned a lot like i'm i'm pretty canny in races and i'm quiet like i don't say much but if i need to i've got some advice um that i can give and i feel like that's probably where i'll i'll go as just those younger riders that are coming in and just give them the advice that i gave them and I think it can become real stress and pressure um, mm. in this job, um, and you you can find yourself kind of spiraling out of out of control and just starting to to panic. And yeah, I mean, it's, it shouldn't be that. You should be getting on the plane every time and wanting to go there. And it would be good to to pass that on. I mean, we've got young riders in the in the team now that I mean, so a lot of them are like want to share a room with me and. Which, which is nice. Like it's it's nice to to have people that ask to be roommates with me because I calm them down and mm. I'm quiet and my yeah. I mean, I I go into a room at, at night and it's like I'm not even in a bike race. I'm just watching rubbish on the telly or, <laughs> you know, just really. I know how to switch off switch off from it all. Yeah, that's great. Like I think that's exactly right. It's about trying to pass that knowledge or that those mistakes that you've made along mm. the way or just the things that you've learned onto those to the young ones coming through yeah. younger ones or even maybe not young but just sort of inexperienced um it's sort of a, a nice little process of it i'm just sort of experiencing it the last few years myself yeah. um you're like oh hang on maybe i do know something you know and yeah um, to be able to pass that on yeah and also like you've made mistakes and you mm. just want to like everyone makes mistakes you don't like you can you can cross the line sometimes and get on a plane going home and think like oh I wasn't good then. Like I made a mistake and I cost the team, whatever. But that happens to everyone. Mm. Like we're not all heroes, so you can't be heroes all the time, I guess. We can't. No, we can't. <laughs> well, we've just had a great chat. We, um, I won't take any much more of your time. I hope everyone enjoyed that today. It might be time for a, a cold beer or, you know. <laughs> A drink of your choice, which we can talk about in Talking Loft. So I'm going to sort of lead that in and we're going to have a little break and do a Talking Loft. So mm-hmm. Hannah, thank you very much for your story. <laughs> well, there we have it. A great podcast, a great chat with Hannah. I really did love sitting down and hearing her story. And I have actually noticed lately I've been really interested in the entry of cycling and the exit of cycling. You know, I think you guys are probably aware that the exit of cycling is pretty interesting for me now as retirement I'm talking about. But just as much so, I'm quite interested again about the entry of cycling, about, you know, talking to the Fisher Black brother-sister combo last week or two weeks ago, hearing about how they made that trip across and how they entered this world that I'm just about to leave. And also interesting hearing about Hannah's story too, about how she made her way across and went to the States and came back. And it's really interesting for me. So you might be wondering why I'm sort of touching in and out of these sort of episodes at the moment. 
I don't think I really realized it, but subconsciously, I think I've just been really interested in those types of stories at the moment. Um, Lionel, I don't know, did you pick up on that in the last few episodes as well? I have, Mitch, yeah, but I guess it's inevitable, isn't it, as you head towards your retirement as a pro rider. I, I suppose the other sort of similarity, I was listening to Hannah talk about, you know, her injuries and just, you know, it, you all have something in common. You kind of talk about these injuries, broken bones and... Um, you know the, the the pain gets kind of diminished with the telling of the story really and it's it's a occupational hazard and, and fact of life for professional riders um, but just hearing her talk about you know a mum being on the phone uh, in tears and, and her not wanting to kind of um, give too much detail about you know how badly injured she was it's just a reminder that that again we take these things for granted that uh, the riders are out there risking um you know, risking their limbs every time there's a, a race. So, yeah, that really kind of sort of made me sit up a bit and, and listen because uh, it's something that we do take for granted, I think. It is, and it's, it's something that I sort of maybe take myself for granted is that you just get on with it. You know, you, I broke my elbow a couple of weeks ago, not to sing my own song here, but you're just like, let's get on with it. Let's get home. Let's think about the next goal. There's no time to sit around and sob about it. You just got to move on. And you just think that is the norm. But when I hear her story, I can sit back and reflect on it in a different way. Think, whoa, yeah, that that is quite full on. And you think, well, actually, hang on, I'm doing the exact same thing these last two weeks. Um, And I do love that. I've been able to turn and have a little bit of a spin on my own sort of circumstances at the moment and think, well, I'm really getting, you know, the juice squeezed out of the lemon out of the last bit of my career here. I'm doing the double session ergos every day right up until the last couple of weeks of my career. Who would have thought about that? Everything happens for a reason and someone's gone, you know what, Mitch? Now you're going to really finish this one and make sure you really, really finish it off. So it's been it's been quite funny um, if I can laugh about it sometimes because I haven't been laughing all the time. But yeah, every so often when I get too down on myself or pissed off riding on the ergo, I go, you know what? This is a, such a funny way to end my career, really. <laughs> well, it's uh, looming up quickly now, isn't it, Paris-Roubaix? It's only a couple of weeks away, and uh, I think it's going to feature in one of your final episodes, all being well, isn't it? Um, you've got a couple of things coming up, and inevitably, one is looking at the whole process of retirement. How's work on that going at the moment? Very good, yeah. So I've got a, two podcasts left this season, Um next podcast you're going to come on the road with me on my last week racing um, I've got two races left I've got the Euro Metropole Tour uh, which is a one day race the Wednesday before Paris-Roubaix that is essentially a trial race for me to see if I can race um, at the top level and then if we'll make a decision after that when I say we the team will make a decision after that whether I'm fit enough to race for Paris-Roubaix then I'll race Paris-Roubaix. So I'm going to document that whole sort of period there. What it's like going into this last race and also just around Paris-Roubaix. I just love talking about that race. Following that, a couple of weeks afterwards, we've got the final podcast, which is going to be a retirement podcast where I've gone out and spoken to a whole array of ex-riders, ex-professionals from different periods of time and just sort of got their thoughts over, you know, what it's been like on the other side, you could say, um, which has also been a very therapeutic process for me, which has been sort of done throughout this year um, at different points of the season. It's been really interesting. I've been talking to these 
these guys and just asking them the same sort of questions, but at different points, I mean, in different mindset over the year and hearing these answers from these guys and being able to pick their brain has been very, very interesting. And like I said, very therapeutic, very helpful for me as I, as I prepare myself for that transition. Really looking forward to both those episodes, Mitch, and a, f- a fine way to finish off, off the years for sure. That's right. I do. I do have Talking Luft next week with Hannah Barnes. So get across and have a listen to that at Life in the Peloton. And as you may have seen on the social network or social media, sorry, there's been another little collaboration that we have done with Swa Cycling. That's around the World Championships, an exciting little T-shirt we've done there. That's been released earlier this week, but the logo T-shirt is up and available. So make sure you get that Get over there and see that. That's Swiss Cycling, C-O-I-S, cycling.com. Check that out. That's only up for a couple of weeks. And guys, like I said, in a couple of weeks' time, we've got the Roubaix pod. Paris-Roubaix is going to be there. The World Championships this weekend. It's the Festival of Cycling in October. My birthday's somewhere there in the middle, so that's always fun to have a beer on. So guys, thanks very much for tuning in. And until next time, cheers. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.